Father, we also come before you and we ask for your blessing upon your word that you would enlighten us, you would help us to learn from those in Corinth, from their failures, their mistakes, for we have all things in common and there is nothing new under the sun. So help us not to be repeaters of those uh, who have gone before us in the faith. And we ask, Lord, that you accomplish the fulfilling of wisdom by your spirit in us and also add to our faith goodness and to goodness knowledge. And with that knowledge, we know that you'll enable us to have self-control. So, Father, bless your word in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're back with the church in Corinth in We know that Paul, as I have said in the past few weeks, he loved the people there, but he starts getting into this little bit of admonishment, even rebuke mode, because of their immaturity and the way that they are acting, they're causing divisions inside the church. If you need to turn on the other ones, yeah, they're the the big, there you go. And so there's divisions inside the church, and and he takes the time in chapter 3 to really give a bunch of metaphors to explain what's going on. He uses the metaphor of a, a builder and metaphor of a farmer and a metaphor of a field, and there's a few others that are in there. But he wanted to make sure they understood that no one is above somebody else. It's just we have different tasks, different chores to do. It, it would be like in the church here. Uh, there's lots of people with oars, and occasionally I pick up an oar, but for the most part I have the rudder. And we're all in the same boat. We're all doing the same thing, and we can even rotate in that. It just depends on who's at the oar and and who's at the rudder or who's on the sail. And and you get this idea of Paul using metaphors over and over and over to try to convince the people. And he used metaphors that they would understand. And he talks about being a fellow worker, uh, that he is a fellow worker along with Apollos and, and Cephas. And we are... God's field, we are God's building. But in verse 10 that we already covered, he says he is the expert builder as well. He has been trained his whole life for this moment of discipling, leading to salvation, those in the city of Corinth. And then he goes on to say, and I want you to notice this if you're looking at the text. In verse 10, he says, someone else, But each one should be careful how he builds, for no one can lay a foundation other than what has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. If any man builds on the foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. And if he has built If what he has built survives, he will receive his reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss. He himself will be saved, but only as one escaping through the fire. Do you notice there are some repeating things in there? I tried to put the emphasis on the the pronouns there, he, his, and then it goes into someone else or each one. Who's that referring to? That's referring to those in the church of Corinth. And he's saying that, your building, and remember I talked about this last week, the wood, hand, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones, and we are building on the foundation, which is Jesus Christ and the apostles. We're doing that. And what kind of materials are we using? Are we using the wood, hay, and straw? Or are we using the gold, silver, and costly stones, the precious stones? What are we using, and how difficult is it to get the, 
costly stones and the gold and the silver. It, it's, it's hard. I covered all of that. But with this, we are building, as I explained last week, our lives in Christ. We are laboring at it. And we're supposed to be doing that, becoming disciples. And I would ask, how's the job going of you building your life in Christ, your discipleship? Are you, in fact, exercising with forethought and muster your ability to go out and mature yourself? If you can think back when you were younger and you started becoming aware as an adult of your world around you. You know, before that, it was Legos. It was, I don't know who played with dolls, but I certainly didn't play with dolls unless it was G.I. Joe. You know, and, and, and you had all of this stuff that you were doing, and we had Red Rider uh, wagons and BB guns, and we had had BB gun fights. I don't recommend that. Uh, but, you know, you, you do stuff like that, and you're concerned with your world. That's it. You, it's your world, and you don't go too much outside of that. You have your family. But then when you become adult, and you start paying taxes, you start driving, you see how sinful everybody else is, but not you yourself. And then you get in touch with what's going on in the world, and you're, you're just aware of what's happening. And that's how we're supposed to do it as believers, too. Somebody needs to come along and assist, help you to mature, give you proper doctrine, and then from that point, you're supposed to, we are all supposed to, start feeding ourselves. We're, we're supposed to take up our own utensils and, and put the food in our own mouths. And before we do that, as we become an adult, we have a job, and then we have money, and then we have a car, and we go buy our own food, and we put it in our own refrigerator, in our own place that we have. We're, we're maturing. We're, we're growing up. Now, not everybody can do that. I, I understand and there's no condemnation in that. But for the most part, that's what we do as a society. In the spiritual realm, sometimes we don't do that. We don't go on to maturity. We don't really dive in. Have you ever seen somebody who's just starting to be a carpenter? As opposed to somebody who is a carpenter? I, I know uh, guys, I've seen these young workers, and they go out there and they try to do stuff, and... It's not quite right. You're really not skilled in what you're trying to do. We had some uh, mere doors on a closet installed, and they sent out a rookie, and he couldn't even cut a 90-degree angle on the channel there, and I had to call him back. This was years ago. And I could tell, you know, he, I said, hey, you need to come out and fix this. And they came out, and they looked at it, and it was one of those um, face palm things. You know, when they looked at it... He sent this guy out, and then somebody else came out. It's perfect. They, they did it absolutely perfect. They were skilled. And that's how we're supposed to be with God's Word. We're supposed to be skilled in it. We're supposed to have the ability to use it and wield it. Uh, have you ever seen a little boy or girl in T-ball? They try to swing at that ball, and a lot of times they hit the pole. And, you know, okay, and then when they get it, everyone, yeah! and they, they run around the bases. If they were doing that in the major leagues, that would be a problem. And so we're supposed to build our lives as God get, gives us the ability to do so. But not only that, we're supposed to be engaged in the lives of others because it, it talks about someone else 
coming in, each man, and we're supposed to work as a unit. Like in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the, the hand can't say I'm not part of the body because I'm not the eye. You can't do that. We all have our parts and we're all supposed to assist in one way or another. And of course the materials being used, the gold, silver, and precious stones, it's anything that is done uh, for God's glory as being led by the Spirit. And uh, the wood, hay, and stubble or the wood, hay, and straw which is out there, that's anything done for the flesh and it's self-focused. And we all have something in both categories, I believe. And when God puts the fire to it, metaphorically speaking, our reward will be clear. So we're supposed to help others. Now, there are some errors inside the church, and we want to do some self-examination on this as Paul talks about it here and as we experience this. One of the errors that we have is somebody who serves but doesn't grow. Then there's somebody who grows, but doesn't serve. Then there one is one who does neither. They neither grow, nor do they serve. And of course, what's the last one? You grow and you serve, right? So maybe you're in one of the four categories. You're definitely in one of the four categories, but which one? Somebody who serves but doesn't grow is the person who's always concerned about, well, the church has to be just right and there has to be paint and get rid of the cobwebs and make sure all the lights are fixed and they're just focusing on the things in the church. And it can be in any ministry. It can be in ushering. It can be in hospitality. It can be in worship. It it can be in anything where you're simply serving, but there's no application, there's no studying, there's no fellowshipping, and there's no growing being done. But then there's the growing but not serving. That's the person who just takes in every single message, goes to every single Bible study, and when they're asked, hey, would you like to serve? I know. But we're supposed to be doing that. We're working on God's building, so to speak. And I'm not talking about the building, although that's applicable. We're talking about the body of Christ and the health of those inside the body of Christ. And they're those who are coming to the church, not necessarily this church, just the church universal, that they neither grow nor serve. They listen day after day, Sunday after Sunday. They may even go to a study, but there is no growth taking place and there is no serving. That person, I I don't even know if they're saved because God says that we will produce fruit if we are in him and we don't struggle it just happens all by itself you know all the trees are budding right now all the grapevines they're pushing out their little baby leaves that are on there pretty soon there's going to be clusters of grapes and you know the there's a couple of citrus trees out there that are just so heavy laden with fruit they're just falling all over the ground And they haven't struggled at all. And I've talked about that struggling of a fruit tree. A fruit tree doesn't struggle at all. It just abides. It just hangs out. And the Lord does that. And so somebody who is saved will eventually produce the fruit. And then there's the final one, growing and serving. And I've seen hundreds of people over the years. And 2021 is going to be 30 years. I've seen tons of people go from salvation to serving in women's ministry or elder, uh, just really taken off. And then there are those who hinder themselves where they could take off, but they just decide not to. And so we understand that's how the church is built. It requires all of us working together, 
to help build the church. And this is how God has designed it. Now, what did Paul do as an example to us? What did he do in order to build the church? In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25, it tells us a few of the things that he did. And of course, during this little section, he's trying to make his defense for apostleship. Because as we'll see towards the end of the chapter here, there are those inside the church that are really nefarious characters. They're evil. They're doing that which is wrong. They're garnering people for themselves. They're trying to build their own kingdom. They're building on another man's foundation. Well, so he says, I'm talking like a fool here is what he says, but he gives us insight as to what he has gone through in order to give the gospel out and to bring maturity to those who wish to grow. He says in verse 25, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent the night and the day in the open sea, I have been constantly on the move, I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers, I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep, I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food, I have been cold and naked. That's what he's done in order to get the gospel to somebody. And sometimes, you know, and this is not, I'm not saying this to be condemning. I'm just pointing out some of the facts. It's too cold. I'm not going to church. It doesn't smell right in there. You know, you just paint it and I, I can't do that. And, and you look at the apostle Paul and the guy's almost dying. He was actually, I believe he was killed once and God resuscitated him, brought him back. Said, you're not done yet. Get up. Go. Stop complaining. You can't complain about this stuff. You know, as a believer, imagine you were stuck on a cruise ship, a princess cruise ship, for two weeks, and you get stale sandwiches. Would you be calling up the canteen or whatever the rest? I've never been on a cruise. I don't know if I'll ever go on one now, but, you know, whoever you call up to get some food or something, would you get, we're starving, we don't have soap, we don't have, would you do that? Or would you just patiently wait and endure like the Apostle Paul? How would you like to be floating in an ocean for a night and a day? Oh, I just saw a picture of this shark. Actually, it's the shark's head. And the head was as big as the guy. And something bit it all the way up to its head. And this shark's head was as big as the guy. How big was that shark that bit that shark? And how would you like to be out there in the water? Now, I've been out there in the water, and Buzz and I have seen the sharks out there. And how would you like to be floating there, and you don't know what's there? Buzz has often said to me, you know, when we're sitting on the back of the boat, and we're ready to go in, he goes, you go first. (laughs) You know, just in case there's something down there. And then when you're floating down, sometimes you can't see the bottom. You get down there, and you're at the bottom when it's right here, and you're going... Okay, the visibility isn't so good. And you can't see things around there. And would you be frightened floating out there in the middle of the ocean for a full night and a full day? I mean, this guy is such an example of what he endured. And we get a little hangnail and we get all bent out of shape. Now, I'm not saying any of you, but that's just the mode of the Christians. It's because the church is usually filled with a bunch of infants. And that's... It's supposed to be filled with infants. 
And we're supposed to show them, now, we need to grow up a little bit and we need to kind of move on. And, and so Paul is such a great example for us of how we're to live and not complain because he was the one that authored Philippians 2.14, do everything without complaining or arguing. And he had every right that somebody was going to complain. Now he goes on to say in verse 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, says, don't you know that you yourselves are the God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple. Now, this, these two verses have been taken out of context I don't know how many times. And things are said like, don't you know that you're smoking and you're destroying God's temple? Don't you know that you should not have four double-doubles? Don't you know that that's God's temple that you're putting that into? And don't you know... You should be exercising, taking care of God's temple. I want to tell you, all of those things are out of context. That somebody who has a particular bent, and they are, this is called eisegeting, where you go to a verse and you say, See, this is what you're doing. You're violating the principle. You're sinning because you're not taking care of God's temple. Do you know that we're all under a curse? We're all going to die and we all get sick and that's the end of us? We are. And we can't perfect this body. And every time we try to perfect it, what happens? I listen to some guy on the radio who goes, Every day I get 6,000 steps before 5 a.m. in the morning. And he's working out every day. And I'm thinking, you're trying to perfect the flesh. And it's still going to succumb to the elements which are out there. And yet we're supposed to perfect the inside and not the outside. So what is he talking about here? What is he saying when he says... You are the temple of God. Well, and this is another metaphor that he's using. And of course, he used the farmer and the builder and all of that. And when it comes to you are the temple of God, well, he's referring to us building our lives in Christ. That's true. But there's something much more broad. If we look at this in our culture today, we completely miss what he's talking about. Now, where was Corinth? Corinth was in Greece. In Greece, what did they worship? They had the temple of Aphrodite, the temple to Apollo, the temple to Hermes, the temple to Venus Fortuna, the temple to Isis. They also had the Pantheon, which is the temple to all the gods which are out there. So they knew about temples. And so Paul is really not talking to a lot of Jews, although he's talking to some. And if those were there, they would have said, the temple, the temple that's in Jerusalem. It would be that way. It's in Jerusalem. And imagine defiling the temple to a devout Jew. The Jew, his hair would go on fire. He'd start screaming. He'd want to stone somebody if that was the case. They were zealous for the temple when that temple was there. What about the temples that were in Corinth? All of these temples that were there, the temple to Apollos, you know, one time, I think it's 154 BC, this uh, Roman guy goes in there, burns down the whole city. All that's left are the seven pillars of the temple to Apollos. That is their Apollo, I should say. And they revered these things. The only thing they saved after it burned down was that and a fountain that they kept there. But 
there, the city was filled with temples. And so he's dealing with people in Corinth that know what temples are. And they know how devout people can be in taking care of the temples. It is the temple of God, and you, you need to take care of it according to these pagan gods that they would follow. And if somebody came in and started defiling that temple, literally all hell would break loose. They, they would not stand for that whatsoever. There would be a riot. We know that Paul, you know, with a silversmith, he caused them all kinds of problems because of the things he was speaking about. The, they were suffering in their trade of making the little silver idols. And so there was a problem. And what he's talking about here, if any man destroys the temple, God will destroy him. Is he referring to the temple of Apollos or the temple of Zeus or the temple to all the gods? Is that what he's referring to? Is he referring to the temple in Jerusalem? No, he's, he's giving them another illustration that the church is being built, but the church is made up of individuals who are the temple of God and collectively they are the bride of Christ. And if you get in there and you start messing with it, whether it's yourself or whether it's the church and the body of Christ, God is going to bring judgment on that person. And he's saying this because when we get to the end of the chapter, he starts saying, stop looking at Apollos and Cephas and all of it. Stop with this division. And you see how it's just continuing here. He's not stopping with this. And so he's saying, if you go and destroy the temple, which all these temples, they would have said, oh yeah, temples, the temple of Apollo and, and Zeus and Aphrodite, we get that. If you destroy that temple, there's going to be judgment. And they knew that if you destroyed one of the temples there, there would be judgment which was to come. And so he's speaking to a people that have temples all around them. They understand what it is to defile a temple. And he says, God's going to judge the individuals who are bringing divisions inside the church. They're going to be judged. They're trying to destroy the church. And if you get the whole of First and Second Corinthians, Paul, he, he starts using sarcasm in this chapter. And, of course, I mentioned this before. In Second Corinthians, he calls them super apostles. Oh, you're super apostles. That would be like saying today, oh, you're a super evangelist. Or you're a super televangelist. Or you're a super pastor. Or you're a super elder. Oh, you're just so super. You know, you can belong to the... Uh, supers which are out there and, and so he's being totally sarcastic with them when he says that but he's really just hitting the nail on the head as far as these guys destroying the work of god so the foundation is set the foundation will never go away the walls go up what kind of materials are you using and of course when the walls go up if it's wood hay and stubble it's the dissension it's the faction it's the envy it's the strife which is there all of those things now he goes on in verse 18 says, do not deceive yourselves. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standard of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become wise. Now, who is he talking to here? You have to kind of read between the lines when it comes to the church in Corinth and what Paul wrote about it. He said, do not deceive yourselves. In other words, are there those who are deceiving, deceiving themselves? There are. There are some people in there who are deceiving themselves thinking the division is the way to go. If any one of you thinks he is wise by the standards of this age, in other words, they were puffed up. They were prideful on the inside. Oh, Paul, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I know what we're, what's best for us. And this is the direction we're going. He should become a fool so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. So if one person thinks he's really wise, that's not being humble. And God says, become humble and then you will become wise because God will show you things at that point. Verse 21. So then, 
No more boasting about men, exclamation point. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours and you are in Christ and Christ is of God. So this is between an admonishment and a full-on rebuke to those people in Corinth that are causing this division. And he's not mincing words, but for us to understand what's going on, we had to have the context. So going on here, the conclusion of the matter, and he goes a little bit farther, but he kind of concludes what he was just saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. So they are supposed to look at the leaders as the ones who serve. And the, the quote-unquote, the higher up somebody gets in a corporation, well, they get perks, right? But they work the hardest. The same thing with the church is the person who is escalating from the worldly point of view is actually becoming the servant. He's the one on the bottom. He's the one, she's the one that cleans the toilets, that makes sure the church has everything it needs, that it has pens and pencils and crepe paper and whatever is necessary. That person becomes the servant of all, the greatest in God's kingdom, and we know that. It goes on in verse 2. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. What trust has he been given? He's talking about himself. The trust over the church of Corinth, raising them up, getting them saved. He goes on to say, I care very little if I am, and there's going to be a word that repeats here, that if I am judged by you or any other human court, indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me, therefore judge nothing before the appointed time wait till the lord comes he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motive of men's hearts at that time each will receive his praise from god what word repeats judge is paul being judged he is paul is being judged and in response to that he says i don't care if i'm judged by you so what who are you Mr. Super Apostle, and it's probably one or several people in a group that are doing it. And he goes, my conscience is clear, and the Lord knows that I'm innocent. And so, hey, the final judgment's going to come. And he's kind of, it's a veiled warning. God's going to judge you too at the end of the thing. And he's going to expose the motive of your heart or your hearts collectively, whoever is being involved in this. And so they're, they're doing this. I, I want to say again, I want to use that word nefarious. It means evil or wicked or despicable. They are not pure. They are tr- perpetrating evil inside the church and is causing harm to the church itself. Now, Paul was clearly being judged unfairly. He was not there to adjudicate his case, to judge it correctly or to present his case to those who are around but they were casting Paul in a bad light to the rest who were in the church. They were going astray. And they were telling them to use their gifts improperly. They were allowing them to eat the Lord's Supper improperly. They were allowing them to have each other take fellow believers to court improperly. 
they will allow people to have divisions between them and keep them improperly. Everything was being done improperly, although they were believers and they had the gifts of the Spirit. They just hadn't learned how to do it yet. So when Paul's being judged here, what about that? Haven't you ever heard, you're not supposed to judge? Doesn't Scripture say that? Scripture says, do not judge or you too will be judged. How many times have you heard that from somebody? I've heard the, don't judge me, man. What, What are you talking about? Does it say, don't judge, that there's a prohibition on judging anything? If you see somebody doing something wrong, you say, I'm not going to judge that. I don't want to be judged. That's not what Scripture says. Matter of fact, the Scripture says several times, we are to judge. We're to make judgments. And the, the spiritual man makes judgments about many things, not just one thing. For instance, as I'm speaking, you're consciously or subconsciously saying to yourself, oh, that's right. Or you're saying, no, I don't think so. I think he's a little off kilter here. And you're making a judgment about everything I'm telling you, and that's what you're supposed to do. The Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians because they received the word with eagerness and they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true, and they were judging his words. And we are supposed to do that. Whenever we hear a speaker, we're to judge what they say. So when do we judge according to Scripture, and when should we not judge? Because Paul was being judged unfairly here, but we know that the spiritual man is spo- or woman is supposed to make judgments on everything. So I'm going to tell you when it's okay to judge. I'm going to give you some points here. <clears throat> Number one, it's okay to judge ourselves. Would you ever turn to yourself and go, I'm not going to judge myself. You know, I'm, I'm going to let the Lord take care of it. First uh, Corinthians eleven twenty eight says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks of the cup. For if anyone eats and drinks and recognizes the body of the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Or excuse me, without recognizing the body of the Lord. This is why many uh, among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. So it's okay to judge ourselves. We can look at ourselves and bad boy, Bill, you needed to do this right and you didn't do this. And if you go too far down that road, you'll end up being self-condemned. You'll, you'll never do anything right. But you just want to have a sober view of yourselves. I need a sober view of myself and you likewise. So that's number one. It's okay to judge ourselves. Secondly, it's okay to judge <clears throat> and settle disputes among Christians. You have two people on opposing sides that just can't seem to work it out and they need to work it out, but they just can't do it. It says, if any of you has a dispute, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 8, with another, dare he take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if you are to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that... We will judge angels how much more the things of this life. And it continues down to verse 8. We can judge between each other. If there's a case that's going on, it needs to be adjudicated. And, you know, sometimes I've seen feeble attempts to get people together. And they're so concerned with just working it out that they don't want to offend anybody by turning to them and said, you did wrong. And you need to change this. You need to say you're sorry. You need to ask for forgiveness. But sometimes when you get people like that together inside the church, the leaders, they're so afraid of offending somebody 
that they just don't want to tell him the way it is. Or both may be wrong. And you can say, you know, you were wrong with the offense and you were wrong for trying to kill them verbally. What are you guys doing here? You're dividing the body of Christ. Don't do that. And if that ever happens where you're in charge of trying to get two people to settle, don't just say, okay, I don't want to offend anybody. Can't we just pray and get along? No, some things need to be reconciled. That's why we have real judges who are out there. And we're to do this inside the church. Number three, it's okay to judge unrepentant sins among believers. That means the person who comes in the church and says, I can do this, God loves me, and it's okay. He accepts me for who I am. No, he doesn't. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, and if there is an issue that you need to repent from, repent means turn around, you simply say, you're right. I need to repent. Now, if a person says that over and over and over, and I've heard this before too. Yeah, we confronted them on that, and they just haven't changed, and so that's it. Out of the pool. They're done. And if the person comes back and says, I know it's wrong. I, I, I just I can't seem to get it right. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 applies here. And it says, if you see somebody caught in a sin, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. And in humility. And we're not supposed to condemn that individual. It's the individual that says, no, I'm good, man. What's wrong with you? I can do this. I have freedom in Christ. No, it doesn't work that way. And the person who says that, that person, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you're to ask them to leave the church. You're not supposed to remain here. It's the, all of us have something inside. Something that just causes us to trip stumble and fall it it could be an attitude it could be an action of some kind but we all have that and has anybody ever come to you and say well you need to get rid of that in other words you need to perfect the flesh Uh uh-huh you think you're going to perfect the flesh i don't think so it's not going to happen in this life not until you meet the lord jesus christ so we're always going to struggle with something it's like the world with this coronavirus thing do you know why they're doing all of this It's because they want to avoid pain, suffering, and death. Guess what we're called to? Pain, suffering, and death. We're called, we carry crosses around with us. It's a way to get somebody killed, crucified. And the world looks at that and says, no way, no how. Don't show me the cross. I don't want to see the, I don't want suffering. I don't want any of that stuff. Now, they're probably going to suffer not because of Christ, but because of their own foolishness. Spend too much money on these hoarding things which are out there. It's just like ridiculous. So we are to judge and settle disputes among Christians. It is okay to judge unrepentant sins among believers. And it's okay to judge the things in light of biblical truth. You know, if somebody comes along, <clears throat> there, there was this uh, guy. I think his... I'm, I'm going to try to recall his name, Matthew Vine. And he's a young guy, and he's trying to make a defense for homosexuality inside the church. And how the Old Testament, yeah, it was bad back then, but now Christ accepts everyone. And he had this little video, I think it's still on YouTube somewhere, where he says, 10 reasons why homosexuality is okay. And as long as you're monogamous and you're married to one partner and you remain faithful to them, God accepts 
that individual. And, and he tries to make the case biblically, and once he's done with his little, um, little set on YouTube, he doesn't make one biblical argument for why it's okay. He just gives his opinion through the whole thing. And, and so we are to judge things of this life in light of biblical truth. And, and so whatever is going on in life, especially as you know, religion and politics, as politics bleeds over into religion, or for, I'm going to give you a case I just read about yesterday. In the UK, I think it was the UK, there was this case of this baby. This baby has a, a, a really bad disease, and the courts decided that the baby must die that they're not going to treat the baby, even though the parents have the money and they want to pay extra to get it done. The court said, no, you can't do that. There's another country, uh, Sweden. Sweden is in charge of licensing midwives. And there were some midwives who went through there and they brought a, a suit against the country of Sweden because the country of Sweden said, if you're going to be a midwife, you have to perform abortion. And the midwives brought the suit saying, you know, I, I want to conscientiously object from this. And they said, you cannot. If you are a midwife, you cannot object and you must perform abortions. And they said, that's the right thing to do. Now, judging that in light of biblical truth, I know a story of midwives who were told to throw away the babies into the river. And we know how wrong that was. And so if we look at the politics of things out there, the way the world is, we can say, that's wrong. We're not supposed to do that. We're not supposed to make people kill other people. We're not supposed to be involved in that. But the world would say, what are you talking about? There's no God, and we're just going to do this, and poo-poo to your idea. And, and so we can judge things in the world as opposed to in the church using biblical truth, and we can stand up and say, this is wrong. If, if, I love somebody, I've heard this phrase often, it is better to have clarity than agreement. I want to know where somebody stands. I don't want them to mince words of any kind. I want them to tell me straight. When it comes my time, if I, I go to the doctor and he says, well, you either have a heart condition or cancer. Which one would you like to go from? And when, when it's that time, just tell me straight. Which is it? Is it cancer, heart attack? You know, what is it? Just tell me. I will appreciate that doctor. But if the doctor just says, well, you know, it, it could be a number of different things that could take place. And, and he just kind of equivocates and kind of glosses over everything because he doesn't want to offend me. And it's like, just talk to me straight. Just tell me what you think. And I may not agree with an individual when it comes to a biblical subject, but I'm going to tell him what I think. I'm going to tell him, hopefully, what God thinks. And I've bought into his program. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, I'm out of time, and we'll return to this when it's okay to judge. And when it's not okay to judge, I'm going to go through that. But may the Lord help you to uh, continue on your road to maturity, that you don't have to worry or fret that you're going to produce the fruit in keeping with repentance, because God brings us all along. All we have to do is abide. All we have to do is hang out with him. And, and just remember to be praying also for all the families that have lost somebody with the coronavirus. They're suffering, and it's real, and I, I know we make jokes about it, but sometimes you, you just have to give a little humor in there to keep your sanity because of what is taking place. 
So may the Lord strengthen you. May he call you into his goodness and grace to be a servant par excellence that it just excels in the things of the Lord. So let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word and we thank you how you have instructed us in it, whether it's judging or whether it's walking in the flesh and, and having divisions and envy and strife. We pray, Lord, that we would be aware when we are a part of any of that and help us to consider ourselves, just like Paul, a servant, the one who simply helps others who doesn't complain, but does your will in all circumstances. May you bring this to fruition. In Jesus' name, amen.